knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 275th episode of the podcast, which puts us smack dab in the middle of this very first Cast One series. The Cast One series on the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast is a look at some of the most elementary aspects of fly fishing. And there's a myriad of benefits of doing this, uh, both for the brand new angler or the person who is curious about fly fishing, but also for the person who's been fishing for a while. It's always helpful to go back to basics. That first day of training camp, even for a 10-year veteran, has value. But as I've been saying, and hopefully it doesn't too repetitive, having these basic concepts articulated to you can help you then pass them on to either somebody who you are formally training up or somebody that you're just trying to give a little bit of help when it comes to fishing. And today we find ourselves uh, getting to the point where we're actually presenting flies to fish. So we've gone through what fly fishing is, uh, the basic gear, rod, reels, and line, everything else that then comes with it, then finding and reading water. Now we're talking about casting that fly and presenting the fly. So we're not going to spend too much time on fly casting because it does not make for good radio. There's some things that I've said that just aren't great to talk about on podcasts. One of them is casting. One of them is tying knots. Um, There's just a number of things. I would even say fly tying, although there's certainly some fascinating fly tying content out there. It's just so much better to visualize because it's a primarily tangible activity, secondarily as a visual activity. And so to only hear about it kind of moves you a few uh, derivations away from really the sweet spot of fly tying. Fly casting is sort of similar, but there's certainly some things that are worth communicating. The best way to start fly casting is to get out there and do it. Now, that being said, if you are new to casting, then there are a few things I would say steer away from. One is trying to just figure it out on your own. Now, there could be some people that are absolute naturals, uh, but there are some things that you may want to stay away from when it comes to fly casting. The best way that I can illustrate this is uh, a baseball swing is very different than a tennis swing. Um, a golf swing is very different than uh, hitting a hockey puck. Uh, now, although the motions seem very similar, there 
are mechanics differences in all those activities in your hips, in your waist, in your shoulders, in your elbows, in your wrists that make them different. And so if you are very good at casting a spinning rod, if you're very good at uh, casting a casting rod, uh, then that doesn't necessarily translate into those skills, that muscle memory that is needed for casting a fly rod. Some of that has to do with the difference of equipment, but it primarily has to do with that very basic distinction between fly fishing and regular fishing, which is in fly fishing, you are casting line so that the line may pull that lure, that fly. And in conventional fishing, you are casting a lure, which in turn pulls the line behind it, allowing you to retrieve it. So if you kind of have some sort of fishing skill, some casting skill, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to translate over into fly fishing and fly casting. So what my great encouragement for anyone and everyone is, is to have some sort of casting instruction when you start. Now, this could be at the bare minimum, watching a YouTube video. This could be reading a book. There's a couple of books that are just spectacular, but the best thing is to have someone walk you through the basic mechanics of fly casting. Where are you going to find this? Well, one, you can pay someone to do it. You any any fly fishing guide worth their salt will charge you an amount of money simply to cast a fly rod. Um, they 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 aren't going to just take you fishing. They are going to provide casting instruction. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to this. I honestly think that if I were to rewind you know, uh, 25 years to when I started golfing uh, or attempting to golf, saying that I've golfed is very much a gross overstatement. Um, and I had someone show me how to do it as opposed to just take a whack at it like I was swinging a baseball bat at a different angle, um, then I would have much more greatly enjoyed uh, my, my high school years and my college years and all the attempts at golfing that I made. But I just went out there and started doing it and developed all sorts of bad habits that I was unable to really kick and eventually just kind of uh, stopped trying to kick them. I think the same thing is true in casting a fly rod. Now, at this point, I do want to say that there is a pragmatic element to this. If you can get your fly where it needs to be, then that's good, and that's admirable, and that's fine. If you can fish, but your cast doesn't look like something that you would find on the cover of a fly rod catalog, then that's okay. But what happens is, because of, of the nature of fly casting, you're talking about relatively minute arm and body movements that get translated over a 9-foot fly rod over a 30- to 70-foot fly cast. The minute motions and movements, those small things that are done that are good are going to translate better and the things that are done poorly are going to translate worse as you, again, extrapolate that over that nine-foot rod and that long cast. So the small things about elbow placement, about even just where your hips are angled, about what you're doing with your wrist, and really at the end of the day, that's one of the, the, the biggest issues is how much wrist is involved. Uh, swinging a, um, a big uh, lure on a spinning rod and just snapping that thing out there, you can do that all with your wrist. That probably isn't going to feel good after eight hours of fishing, but you can do it and do it well. Uh, if you are trying to do an entire fly cast with your wrist, you're going to hit significant limitations at your accuracy, at your power, 
and at your distance. And, and that's just one aspect of it. And so again, my suggestion is getting some sort of hands-on instruction. You can pay a guide, but if, if you're buying a fly rod from a fly shop, then they should be able to at least give you a few pointers that you can then take and have that muscle memory and that hands-on time that then when you go to YouTube or you go to a book, it can then turn into actual legitimate practice time. And practice time is important. So I don't want to downplay getting that initial uh, uh, instruction because I think that matters, whether that be from a, uh, a paid guide or instructor, whether it be from a fly shop, whether it be from some sort of local rod and gun club or a fly fishing club or trout unlimited chapter, uh, knock those things out. Do that. Take, take a few hours and do that. Or even if you just have a friend who fishes, but who's able to kind of show you things and, you know, don't be afraid of, uh, them grabbing your wrist, grabbing your elbow. Um, it was so much easier. I remember when I started teaching fly casting, um, boy, this was almost 20 years ago now. Um, uh, that, uh, uh, it was, you know, you could say, Hey, let me, let me grab your arm and show you this. Now you probably have to ask and all the other stuff. And it is what it is. But, uh, just having that muscle memory is so important. Learning what some of those cues that your body needs to sense as that line is applying weight onto that rod, as that rod is building up energy, knowing when to make those motions is pivotal for accuracy and distance. Um, efficiency ultimately is what it comes down to. You want to cast more efficiently over the course of an hour, over the course of a day, over the course of a week-long fishing trip. That really does matter. It translates into more fun, more fish, less fatigue. So that's the first thing. Uh, but the second thing then is, is practice. Once you have some of those core essentials, those basics, get out there and spend time on the water is preferable. Uh, on grass is secondary. Don't cast on the pavement. Um, I remember when I worked at a fly shop a long time ago, we only had pavement. We had no grass anywhere around. And so we cast on pavement and we would open up the bottom end fly lines and spool them up on reels for our casting rods. So when somebody wanted to go cast a rod, we would take them out in the, the driveway and they would be using these reels with these lines that were specially designated for that purpose. And it was a clean parking lot, but it was still blacktop. And that line would be so chunked up after two or three uses. So that is true for blacktop. It's to a lesser degree true of grass. Um, if and, and grass also has the negative aspect of you're not getting that surface tension. So many casts, and this is where we start to get in the weeds, so many casts require that surface tension of the water to effectively uh, produce the kind of cast that you're looking for, whether it has to be a, a roll cast, which is completely dependent upon the water, or even just generating some sort of tension so that as you pull that rod back and you're pulling that line up off of the water, that line is clinging to that, that, that water surface at a greater level than it would be clinging to grass. So you're actually building up a more energy in that rod. It is flexing more as you're pulling it back to make that back cast when you're pulling line off of water compared to when you're pulling it off of a solid surface, something like grass. And so you actually learn better and learn more quickly and you learn real world 
experience when you're casting on water. So if you are just going to a public park, if you're going somewhere where there is there's no fish but there's water, that is preferable to casting on on dry land. But again, grass is better than nothing, and uh, there's a lot of benefits to learning to cast on on grass. It's just not going to be a one to one experience of casting when you are are on uh, on the water. And the last thing I'll say on casting is um, cast with something on there. Don't cast with just line. Cast with a leader and cast with a little bit of yarn or something like that because that is ultimately uh, what matters. Having the end of your fly line look good on your, your lawn uh, and a cast is not the same as having a fly look good um, at the end of your line and leader. So make sure that you're casting with a leader and with a some sort of fake fly. Don't, don't, don't put a hook on there as you're goofing around, uh, but have something on there. All right, so 10 minutes of kind of casting and casting prep. But now you're out on the water and you have a real fly. What are some things that need to happen? Long before you make that cast, you need to make sure you're in the right place. I think anyone and everyone knows you can't just walk up to a stream and get on top of a fish and kind of drop your fly straight down. Uh, that's not how it works. Fish, even fish that are relatively uh, dumb or or not wary, are not going to be particularly excited about pursuing a fly, something that they are hopefully uh, intending at, to receive as a food source uh, when there is a very bizarre shadow or silhouette above them. And and ultimately, that what it, that's what it comes down to. So you need to consider as you approach the water, one, are you going to be able to make the cast? So is there something directly behind you, something directly above you, something to either side of you? If that's the case, one of the limitations of fly fishing is that you are going to have to work around the things around you. You don't necessarily have that with spinning, spin fishing. You can kind of you know snap that thing real fast and make a long cast without a lot of room around you. That's the first thing. What is around you? How can you work with that? The second thing is how does that fish perceive you? Does it see your silhouette? Does it see you know you up against the backdrop of the the sun or the the just the the light stream side uh, uh, panorama? Or does it see your shadow? Is the sun behind you and now casting a shadow onto that fish? Because remember, all fish are really worried about at the end of the day is getting food, uh, making babies a couple times a year and being safe. And so a shadow or a silhouette compromises that safety. And so that is one of the things they're going to be keying in on significantly. So positioning yourself far away from the fish is an important part of this. So a couple of quick things on this. First of all, you want to consider that you can actually make a cast. There might be a great place that you can be where you're not going to spook that fish, but you're 100 feet away. Um, th that's not going to be efficient or effective. Uh, you might find a place that is great to, to put yourself into that fish, but there's something big in between you and that fish. It may be a current that would be very difficult. So that water, um, you, you know, the water is slow where you are. The water is very, very fast in between you and the fish and where the fish is, the water is slow. So if you were to cast your fly, then that your fly line would get sucked real fast and that fly would not have an opportunity to be presented where that fish is. So this is a situation where you have to consider, is there a way to get into a better place where that fish can not see me and I can still make my cast in a, in a very efficient way. So that that's really part of positioning yourself. And it's something that will come with time, will come with experience, will come with understanding the angles at which fish can see their surrounding environments. 
um, fish can see because of their fraction of, of light and water, they can actually see at a wider angle uh, from being under the water. And there's plenty of diagrams online you can check out um, and, and figure this out. But again, it comes with time, it comes with practice. So the first thing is you have to get into a position where you can approach that fish, but you're not going to be seen by that fish, but you can also make a cast. So again, it's not just about you, it's about the shadow and the silhouette that you present. This is why I am actually not a huge believer in having to wear super drab colors, particularly if you're on larger water. Um, you not throwing a shadow, you not being a big silhouette moving along the stream bank is a lot bigger deal than you wearing orange or you wearing blue. And particularly if you're hunting in, or fishing in some area where there's hunting, it's way more important to wear uh, blaze orange than it is to be in drab colors. Uh, and, and so if you're on top of fish because of the stream and the environment, then yes, you don't want to be in neons. But I have worn a bright orange hat uh, fly fishing for the majority of the last 15 years, and I have not found any sort of uh, diminishment in my opportunities to, to be put on fish. Um, so now once you're kind of in the right spot, and again, there's so much more to this. There's so much of angling involved, getting in the right angle. Um, then there is also uh, going to be, how do you get that fly to this fish? Now, this is where I like to employ a few things when I'm trying to diagnose how I can present that fly to the fish. And the best thing that I can think of to, to help you consider how your fly gets to that fish is to use a fly that you can see. Because it's not as easy as the fish is uh, 15 feet in front of me, so I need to cast 15 feet in front of me. Uh, maybe that will work. And there's times that that will. There, if there are fish that are keying in on uh, flies that are buzzing around on the surface, and you put that fly and it lands right on that fish's nose, sometimes it will come up and take it. But more often than not, these fish are watching what's happening. And that fly landing with any sort of greater intensity than a natural bug landing right on that fish's nose is going to turn it off. There's sometimes where that might precisely be the, the, the formula needed to catch that fish. But more often than not, they're going to be paying attention with a lot of intensity um, as how that, that fly lands, whether it be artificial or it be a natural fly. So in that case, a dry fly, you might want to position it five feet in front of it. The longer that fish has an opportunity to see that fly coming is usually better. Um, again, there's always exceptions. If your fly isn't quite right, you might want that fish to make a snap judgment as opposed to assess your fly in great detail. But you want to put that fly ahead of it. But does it definitely mean on a direct line ahead of that fish? No, for a few reasons. One, the current directly ahead of that fish, if you are, are drawing a line and you are one terminal point and that fish is an intermediate point and your fly is the other terminal point of a direct line, then there's a good chance the current is not moving on that direct line. Uh, oftentimes we don't position ourselves directly downstream from a fish for a few reasons. One, currents don't always move in direct lines. Two, you don't want to necessarily cast your line or your leader on top of that fish because Again, I've said it a thousand times, fish are concerned about eating, 
making babies and being safe and having something foreign fall on top of them. They're not used to seeing things like fly line go over top of them. And that's called lining a fish by casting your fly line over them. You're introducing something alien and bizarre. It's not a stick. It's not a piece of flotsam. It's just some something different that may very well turn them off to feeding. And so you take two or three steps to the side. You make that same cast to that same point. And then now that fly has an opportunity to drift downstream in a very natural way such that it is the only thing, excluding that little bit of uh, um, very, very fine tippet leader material, to go over that fish. Now that is a proper presentation. And that allows you to see, okay, is this current, if I cast at this point, five feet, seven feet in front of this fish's nose, is that fly going to move in the right trajectory, in the right current, so that it goes over the fish? Now, using a fly you can see makes this very, very helpful. And dry flies, more often than not, are flies you can see. Now, similarly, when it comes to a nymph, if you have a very same situation where you have a subsurface fly you want to present to a fish or more often than not, a spot you think a fish is, then you're going to have to cast five or seven or 10 feet in front of that. Well, here it makes a lot more sense. If you are fishing a fly that even if it's weighted and you want to fish to a fish that's 15 feet in front of you, for example, you cannot cast 15 feet in front of you because that fly, as soon as it hits the water, even if it is weighted, it is not going to sink straight down one feet, two feet, and certainly not anything deeper than that that current is going to cause the rate of that fly sinking to not be as fast as if that water was completely still. No water is completely still, but you know what I mean. So think about it this way. If you were to uh, you know, drop a, a penny in a swimming pool, it would sink straight down relatively quickly. If you were to drop a penny in a river, which I don't know why you would do that, then it would flutter and move and that water resistance because of the surface area of that coin would allow it to kind of spin around, but also it wouldn't hit the bottom uh, at the same time as the penny that was dropped in the completely still pool water. This is the same thing with a fly. Plus, you have the fact that your your line is probably floating, so it is not aiding in the sinking process. Um, and you have at various speeds of currents, and you have uh, the, the turbulence of the currents underwater that is causing that fly to maybe even being pushed up. So you what I like to do in this situation, that, and to help me assess what's happening, is to cast a fly I can see, a brightly colored fly. And some of this might simply be for prospecting purposes, just to orient my brain with how this current is moving. So you can use a brightly colored nymph. You can use a streamer that has a little bit of a brighter color, but it's also larger. Something like white or even an olive color might stand out from the stream bottom. And you can watch how that fly tumbles and moves, both in how quickly it sinks, but also what some of those subsurface currents are. When we talked about reading water last week, this is a very important aspect of this. Reading water doesn't just mean reading the surface. It also be, means becoming familiar with how the dynamics of hydrology work. Water moving over rocks, water moving around bends, water moving in slow spots around the, the banks, water bouncing off of rocks, and water bouncing off of and moving against the surface of a stream bank. All of those dynamics are going to change how a current works. So the current on the surface is oftentimes 
an indicator of, but not necessarily a correlation to the current below the surface. And so using a fly that you can see can help you kind of start to gauge this. But then beyond that, when you actually start to come fishing, because the, the fish might not want to be chasing a brightly colored fly, it means casting a and paying attention to what is happening to your leader. Is it going slower than your line or is it going faster than your line? Is your fly being sucked downstream at a rate that's faster than your fly line? Or is your, your fly line pulling that fly? And we don't want that because that is called drag. And all drag is is an artificial um, uh, influence on your leader and on your fly, causing that fly to move in a way that is unnatural. And again, fish want to eat a food that is coming across their path in a very natural way. So there's a lot of information there, but presenting the fly ultimately means getting yourself into a position where you can make the proper cast, where there's nothing behind you, or you're able to, because you've worked in your casting enough, alter your back cast and your casting stroke to the side, maybe up, maybe low, maybe kind of just cocked off a little bit, drop down lower to the water so that you can still present your fly to that fish where you're not going to be casting your line over that fish. But even more importantly, you're not casting a shadow and you're not casting a silhouette so that fish can see you. And then when you do that, you have to put your fly upstream enough that, that it will come in front of that fish. If that is a surface presentation, that's enough time for that fish to assess that, that fly is coming. If it is a subsurface uh, imitation, not only so that fly, fish can assess what flies in front of them, but that that fly has an opportunity to sink down and get in front of the fish. Of course, there's other ways that you can do this. There's certain casts you can make that can get a fly to fish uh, sink faster. There's things you can add to that fly, such as sink putty or split shot or something like that, that will get that fly down faster. But you want that fly to be in the face of that fish in its feeding zone so that it doesn't have to move significantly. Although fish will chase flies, their goal is to expend the least amount of energy possible in order to take in the most calories that they can. So if you're fishing a small nymph, a small subsurface fly, they're not going to be necessarily swimming feet or yards across the stream to chase it down. So you want to get that down and in front of them. And a lot of this comes with practice. But like I said, if you use a highly visible fly to kind of start to learn how water moves and how water moves flies and impacts it, how it moves them through currents, how line and leader pulls flies in different ways, way and how those subsurface currents can actually be different and how things like the stream bottom and submerged rocks will influence those currents, then that will start to become second nature. And you're going to be surprised with how many fish you catch on gaudy, ugly, high visibility flies. Okay. Tons of information. Uh, the, the, the quantity of information out there on finding, reading, casting, and presenting is just astronomical. And I've covered all of those things in a very cursory manner in 40 minutes. This is not meant to be exhaustive. This is meant to be a foot in the door. And there can be something good about saying, I am more confused now than when I started, but I at least have the vocabulary to ask the questions I need to ask. And so what I would say is, if you have questions, don't hesitate to reach out to me. And as always, you can reach out to me at matthew at castingacross.com. 
This week, the articles that came out on Casting Across, 385 fly shops is yours in there. 385 fly shops is yours in there. So we're actually up to almost 400 fly shops now because people have responded. This is my attempt to catalog all of the fly shops in the lower 48. So if you go over to the website, you can click on Fly Shop Directory. It exists at the header bar as well as on the side on the desktop version and on the header bar when you go to the mobile version. And you can go to your state and see if if your fly shop is there, they are listed alphabetically. And if it's not, let me know. You can also find out why maybe I didn't include a fly shop on the corresponding article. Wednesday's article is called Social Media is the Opposite of Fly Fishing. Um, this actually had nothing to do with fly fishing at first. This had to do with some just stuff on the heels of the Super Bowl and people arguing about dumb things. Well, actually, it wasn't a dumb thing. People arguing dumbly. How about that? And so it made me think about how fly fishing can really uh, put a negative spin, uh, be, be spun negatively through social media. So that is what you find in this article. So definitely check that out over at castingacross.com. Uh, this week's recommendation on the podcast is a book I'm only about two-thirds finished with, but I didn't want to hesitate in recommending it. Um, it is a book that is a little bit fly fishing adjacent in the sense that it is not a sole fly fishing book. It's not about how to fly fish. It's not a fly fishing story, but it's a story about how fly fishing has made a real impact in a lot of people's lives. And it is called Healing Waters by Bo Beasley. I will inevitably talk more about this book, either on the podcast and certainly on the website after I finish it, um, as I have with countless other book recommendations over the years. But uh, Project Healing Waters, if you're not familiar with it, you should be familiar with it. It helps uh, veterans who are coming back either immediately after combat, um, more often than not, because of some significant uh, emotional, mental, or physical uh, injury that they have they have endured, and how fly fishing is used uh, to to help them process and help them reintegrate. Um, there's so much more I could say, but um, uh, Mr. Bo Beasley is himself not a veteran, but he uh, has been a firefighter for a number of years, um, and so he has a wonderful heart for these people and his time, energy, and effort in compiling information in this book is simply astounding. And so I'll put a link in the show notes to this page to Healing Waters by Bo Beasley, but uh, my, my encouragement to you would be to just go get it and read it. If you are a veteran or if you have uh, a veteran in your life, um, this will probably be a hard read at some point in time, but it's an important read. Um, but again, I'll be talking about this book more in the immediate future. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.